Quick trivia question. Who do you suppose were the three most recognizable American athletes of the 1920s? If you have a good knowledge of baseball, you could probably get Babe Ruth right off the bat. And if I told you that the legendary boxer Jack Dempsey was active at the time, it might not surprise you to hear his name. According to Wikipedia, the third most famous athlete of the Roaring Twenties was Robert Friedrich, better known by his stage name, Ed the Strangler Lewis. Lewis was a wrestler. Yes, wrestlers were superstars even before the World Wrestling Federation hit television. I actually know a little bit about Ed Lewis. That's because he's from my mother's hometown of Nakusa, Wisconsin. When we would visit my grandparents, we would drive by a historical marker that said, in essence, welcome to Nakusa, boyhood home of Ed the Strangler Lewis. Lewis died before I was born, but I did wonder sometimes whether he ever came back to that paper mill town of 2,500 people on a bend in the Wisconsin River. His career took him all over the world. He eventually wrestled in something like 6,000 professional matches, losing 32. How would have he been received back home? Today there's a lot of concern, and legitimate concern, that things like racism are major issues and obstacles to the flourishing of our country. And so we talk a lot about trying to understand persons who are different from us. And of course this is important. I'm not saying it's not important. If it's true that racism is on the rise, it makes sense to try and learn to notice its occurrence and figure out ways of countering it. But the way of countering it might be counterintuitive. The truth is we have many issues polarizing us at the moment. Acrimony between the major parties, for example. What if all of that is actually a symptom of a deeper problem? Something more puzzling and perhaps more frightening. The truth is that it can be hard to accept the very people who are in the same demographic as me, the people I live with. We monks know this pretty well. When you live cheek by jowl in a small space, little things that annoy me in the behavior of another monk can easily expand into real hatred. The poet Robert Browning perceptively caught this reality in his deliciously dark poem, Soliloquy of the Spanish Cloister. It begins, Grr, there go, my heart's abhorrence. Water your darn flower pots, do. If hate killed men, Brother Lawrence, God's blood would not mine kill you. What has Brother Lawrence done to merit such hatred? The narrator gives us some examples. Among other things, he talks about trivial matters at recreation, not 1920s athletes, but fine points of Latin grammar. He doesn't place his fork and knife in the right way on the plate when he finishes his meal. Now, when this kind of thing happens, and of course we can read this and all see that the narrator has a serious problem, but it, but it rings true to us because I think we all fall into these patterns. And what is, we see in this poem, which, is, uh, which should call us to conversion, is a lack of self-knowledge. Why is it a big deal if this guy puts his knife and fork in the wrong place? Why does that bother me so much? When we find our neighbors, our family members, our fellow parishioners, or our brothers in community hard to bear, 
There's an easy solution to this, and that's to find a scapegoat that we can all hate together from outside the system. And I think that that's really what's going on in our polarization in our society, and why I think that the answer is paradoxically not so much trying to treat the symptoms of acrimony between parties and races and so on, but a return to self-knowledge, that very difficult discipline, and love of neighbor, love of brother or sister. Self-knowledge can be a bitter dish, as St. Teresa of Avila put it, but it is the surest way to God. And paradoxically, again, our seeking to know God is the surest way to come to know ourselves. Jesus returns home. He's the local boy having made good. We all know from experience that this sort of person may or may not be well-received when he does return. Yeah, isn't this uh, Joe's brother? Why does he think he's so great? The people of Nazareth didn't put up a plaque in his honor saying, Birthplace of Jesus the Healer. His reputation actually annoyed them. In Luke's Gospel, they go so far as to try to kill him. Uh, this is the same thing that happens during Easter or uh, Holy Week, excuse me. Though they're the mechanism we can see more clearly, and so I want to talk about that a bit. Jesus rides into town to shouts of Hosanna and goes to his grave five days later to shouts of crucify him. We know that there was tension between the priests and the Romans. And we can go further than that if you know history, the background of the priests at the time. They had bargained with Rome for power and authority, and there had been dynastic struggles for which priestly family would get the spoils. This means that even within the little group of the Sanhedrin, there was a lot of looking askance and wondering who was going to try to take power next. No one was at ease. And it's tempting under those circumstances to find out what could unite them. Caiaphas says it very clearly. Let's get rid of Jesus. That'll make everybody at peace, right? A villain. He can occupy our attention so we don't have to look at the fact that we're the problem. The mystery of why Jesus is rejected starts to become clearer when we think of it in these terms. Here's our challenge as those who are hearing the gospel this morning and trying to follow Jesus faithfully. We can ask ourselves, who is it that comes into my life that I reject? And could this person actually be Christ? And that is why I'm tempted to reject him. Who is it near, near me who drives me nuts? Do I tend to focus on the annoying traits and his failures and his pretensions? Do I think up strategies for how I'm going to tell him this time? I'm going to get him to finally change and not be so annoying. It'll be for his good. He doesn't want to go around annoying people all the time. What if we changed our focus and asked whether this person is Christ in distressing disguise, here to help me learn something about myself that I've been putting off learning? Instead of searching about for a tool to fix external problems, what if I retired inward to let God show me how to fix the more accessible problem, which is internal. St. Augustine often marveled at this paradox. The light of God was within me, he writes in Confessions, while I looked on the world outside. St. Teresa of Avila again echoes him. She writes, It would be absurd to tell someone to enter a room when he was in it already, but you must understand that there are many ways of being in a place 
That is to say, we occupy our own minds and bodies all the time. But sometimes it's painful to pay attention to them. Uh, We might fear what we might find. But it would be better to enter that inner cloister, painful as it might be, rather than run the risk of driving God away when he seeks to come to, to be at home in our souls, when he returns home to his home place. We can get over this bitterness, I would say, if when we enter ourselves we recall that God has already promised to be there by our baptisms. And he gave this gift to us, making his, our hearts his home, uh, out of love, out of the desire to purify us, purify that heart. Christ was born in our souls at baptism. So perhaps, rather than getting caught up in all the news and all the things that make us angry in social media, we could go back to our souls, we could go home ourselves, and put a sign at the entrance that says, now entering your soul, birthplace of the Son of God.